to the very end of the age. In verse 19, it says, therefore, go and make disciples. It does not say go and make converts. It says go and make disciples. So the question is, what is a disciple? Well, according to the New Oxford American Dictionary, a disciple means a follower, a believer, a student, a supporter. The Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, we find that the word used in the, in the Greek New Testament for disciple is methetes. The definition is learner, pupil, disciple. So a disciple is someone who believes and follows the teachings of another and desires to learn more from his master's will. Six years ago, God called us to the foreign mission field of Costa Rica to raise up disciples and to evangelize the people there. So we went. We started with language school. And that's the thing with following God. As long as you obey, you take the first step. He will guide you along the way. Because I don't know about you, he does not give us the full picture all at one time. I wish he did. But he doesn't. sure make things a lot easier. So how, how do we do that? How do we train these people to be disciples? Let's follow what Jesus did. Let's look at Luke 8, 1 through 2. <clears throat> we don't read it, but I'll just paraphrase it. Jesus traveled from town to town and from village to village with the disciples. Jesus is a great missionary and teacher. He is training his disciples up, right? Using Jesus as our example, we are to mirror what he did. He taught his disciples how to do it, exactly what he was doing. So he took them by the hand. He said, okay, guys, this is how we heal people. This is how we deliver them from evil spirits. This is how we do it, and this is how you're going to do it when I'm gone. In Luke 9, is what happened next. Luke 9, verse 6. After Jesus gave them the same, the same power he has, he sent them from town to town and from village to village, doing exactly what Jesus taught them to do. Then what happened? After Jesus showed the disciples all he could, It was time for the disciples to be out on their own. Jesus was put to death and rose from the dead, and the Holy Spirit filled them with power. The disciples had great success. So that's what we do. We take people in Costa Rica. We talk to the pastors. We start a Bible school. And a Bible school builds them up. And, and leads them to a, a new dimension in, in their spiritual walk. So what we do is we plant Bible schools. And what that does, that raises up new pastors, new evangelists, new prophets, new teachers, and new apostles. Okay? So <clears throat> it's, it's awesome how God works. And we'd love to see the students rise up. To the occasion and see the I tell you, our church has never been the same since we started down there. 
the schools down there. <clears throat> we also taught them how to evangelize, how to do street ministry, how to do crusades. They already knew how to do crusades, but we kind of fine-tuned it a little bit. And uh, we also host short-term mission trips. Now, people say, well, what good is a short-term mission trip? I've heard some say, you know, it costs thousands of dollars for a group of kids or a group of people to go on a short-term mission trip. It's only a week. What good does it do? Well, there's a lot of good it does. One, it brings hope to the people down there and to whatever country they go to. And hope is a big thing. Let me tell you, you think you've forgotten, but... When somebody comes down there, they have a little bit of hope. But not only that, God does amazing things on the mission field. Amazing things. That's how we got started on a full-time mission field. We didn't start just going full-time. We have been on the mission field part-time for, what, ten years? Or five years before before we went on full-time. So God does amazing things. He, he brings people to a different level on the mission field. He starts stirring hearts. We also help build, a, we help build churches. We help build a pastor's house. Um, we also do a feeding program. We help feed 200 children and 50 babies in a very poor area of Costa Rica. This was a Christian school, and they needed help. So we, we were able to help them because of a partnership with, with y'all. <clears throat> Now, to get back to the schools, we've had ten Bible schools, and five have already graduated. Ninety students have graduated in all, okay? Victory Church, Guapolis, Costa Rica, we have graduated 50 students. Out of those 50 students, 62% are directly involved in ministry. The other percentage have moved away for one reason or another, or they... They just didn't feel calling or they didn't answer God's call. So the, really that percentage, when you think about it, is pretty phenomenal. But it gets even better. Down in Munu de Fe, World of Faith Church, down in Limon, which is about two, two and a half hours away, we also started a Bible college down there. They graduated 29 students. Out of those 29 students, 100% is involved in ministry. Now, I tell you, that has nothing to do with us. Okay? That has to do with God, and it has to do with the pastor. The pastor has to be on fire. The pastor has to be dedicated to raising up these people. You see, you can start a Bible college anywhere, but you have to have the end plan in mind. What are we going to do with the disciples we raise up? Okay? So our pastor is very proactive. He lets the people that are called to preach, he lets them preach. Tuesday night and Saturday nights, and sometimes on Sunday. Right now we're doing a series on Acts, and everyone that is called to preach gets the chance to preach on Sunday service along with the pastor. So you think that's great experience or what? It is, because our pastor has plans. He has plans of planting churches. We now have a Victory Church in Panama. Not Panama, sorry. Um, uh, Talamanca Mountains and Nicaragua. Nicaragua, yeah. Nicaragua and the Talamanca Mountains is with the Indians. So we're going to need pastors. Okay? 
I wanted to mention, too, that um, our church, Mundo de Fe, two and a half hours away from us in Limon, it, are so on fire for this Bible college that not only did they start another smaller one t- for another church besides their big church, but they are starting one with the Quebeca Indians in the Talamanca Mountains. And that's, that's really special because uh, it's hard to always get through and reach um, some tribes of Indians because they have a lot of um, different ritualistic things and different um, religion, if you want to call it that, that they have grown up with with their ancestors and everything. So it's, it's very special. Yes, it is. So the Lord has, we have, we, the Lord has helped us open up doors. He opened up doors for us and we went through them. So we have trained up our students. Okay, they, they know how to do it. Muna de Fe in, in Limon has started a Bible school in another church. Okay, one of our graduates is leading that school. Okay, our church is starting Bible colleges. So we have, they're doing all kinds of evangelistic outreaches. We now have cell groups. We never had cell groups before. Why? Because our pastor never heard of it. What good are cell groups? Cell groups are good for bringing people into the church. People will attend a cell group, but they may not attend the church. But if they attend the cell group and they see the love and see what's going on with the people there, they come into the church. So our church is growing. That is the importance of cell groups. You're reaching people that you normally weren't in reach. So we have trained these people with the help of the Lord to, to do what we are doing. So what did Jesus do when he did that? He left. And he gave them the power to continue on. Well... God said for us last year, God told me, be prepared for change. Okay, I'm waiting. <laughs> well, <clears throat> we thought that the change would be, he says, it's time to go. It's time to go. In the last year, he said, it's time to go. We thought, we're going back to the States. So I looked for work in the States online. I applied for all kinds of jobs, ministry jobs, pastor, uh, mission pastor job, outreach pastor jobs. I applied for at least 100 jobs, three months, night and day, and I wasn't getting anything. I got one interview. That's all the further it went. So we kind of just looked at each other and said, okay, Lord, now what? Now what do we do? Where do you want us to go? Well, the door has opened for us to go to Panama. And our prayer is always, Lord, close the doors that you don't want us to go through and kick us through the ones you want us to go through. Because sometimes, frankly, the door opens and we just don't want to go through it. So he needs to give me a little extra boost. So... We, an opportunity came up to where uh, we had two weeks to go to Panama and, and just look at the land, find out what's there, and see what God had for us. Well, within the first few days we were there, we stayed at a mission house. And uh, 
the owner, the missionary that ran the mission house, he says, hey, look, there's a mission. There's a pastor's conference going to be here this Saturday. And they're all about missions. Hey, you guys want to attend? Well, what do you think we said? Of course. So we attended. And we're kind of just sitting back and, and talking to people and stuff. And the meeting started. And everybody had a chance to present their church. What their vision, what their mission is for their church. What their goals are for missions. And I tell you, these people are on fire for missions. And... Uh, so then at the end, they said, um, we didn't think that we would have time for John and Shirley to present their, their, their mission. But uh, everybody said that we could. So would you guys like to present your vision and mission? You don't think that was a, a calling from God? That was a door that opened. So we gladly presented what we did with the Bible colleges. And we have several pastors that are interested when we move to go there that we will follow up and probably start Bible colleges with them. So doors are already opening. So we're, the plan is for us to move to Panama by September, beginning September, in that time frame. So there's a lot of work to be done. We have to sell everything we got and start all over in Panama. So a lot of hard work, but it's a little scary, but it's also exciting. We were having a fundraiser. I, I, you know, I know you guys never did this. I know it's only me. The way you had something, you had it put it on a table, and then you walk out the door, and you completely forget about it until you get to the place, and you go, dope, I forgot it. I know it's only me, but I had flyers already printed up, ready to put out for you, but I'll bring them so you have them here uh, next week. But uh, we have a fundraiser coming up. It's a, it's a silent auction. Man, I'm really excited about this. This silent auction, we've got people working on it. We've got um, um, restaurant coupons. We've got, what do we got? Cardinals tickets. we got all, I don't even know everything he's got. He's working on getting some bed and breakfast. Uh, to be auctioned off. So how a silent auction works is you see the item and uh, you can outbid each other on, on other people for what the item is. And um, there's going to be food there. It's going to be some music. Um, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. So that's the 30th of May at 630 at the Elks in Festus. It's right by the Walmart. Yeah, everybody's invited. It's open house. From 6.30 and 9.30. Okay, now I have information up here for you guys next week. Okay, let's get to the message. Title of my message here is, What Keeps Us From Moving Forward in Our Spiritual Life? <clears throat> and my uh, scripture is uh, John 11, 1 through 44. We won't read it all, but let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to deliver your message, deliver your word. Father God, in this awesome church, Father, we just pray for Pastor Terry and Diane as they're on their, their second honeymoon, Lord, Father God, and Father, we just thank you for, this, uh, for them and for their trust in us to deliver your word, Lord, Father God. Father, I ask that you put your word to my lips and uh, have the people receive it, Father God, as it is intended, and uh, we thank you in advance, Lord God. Okay, in John 1 through 44, let me get it here. 
Okay. Okay, this is the story of Lazarus, okay? We won't read the whole thing because it's quite lengthy. But um, let me just paraphrase it here. uh, Jesus is a friend uh, of Lazarus. He's a really good friend. And Lazarus died, right? And he was a brother of Mary and Martha. Remember Mary and Martha back in Luke 10, 38 to 42? Martha was busy doing things, getting things ready for Jesus. For dinner for Jesus, but but Martha was there at Jesus' feet, just just praising him, pouring oil on him and stuff. And but but that's another message. She was doing, Martha, uh, Mary was doing the wrong things, which she should have been doing something else. But anyway, um, that's another message. Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus that Lazarus was very sick, and Jesus said this sickness would not end in death. So of course. He knew what he was going to do way ahead of time, right? He knew that, that Lazarus was going to die, but he was going to live again. He was going to raise him from the dead. And Jesus arrived to Lazarus, and he had been dead four days, right? Four days. And Martha went and told, told him that if he had been there, her brother would not have died. But in verse 22 is a very powerful statement. Jesus said, but I know, well, Martha said, but I know that even now God will do whatever you ask. That is a faith statement, right? Whatever we ask in God's name, right, that is faith. We have to have the faith. Okay, now, <clears throat> Martha went back to Mary and got, got her, brought her back, and uh, who said basically the same thing Martha did. If you would have been here, you wouldn't have died. Well, now we are in verse 38, and this is where my message starts, okay? 38 to 44, so let's read that. 38 to 44, okay? Okay, let's start in 37. If I, if I do not do the works of my father, do not, uh, my father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I am in, in him. Therefore, they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hands. Am I in the right place? No, that don't sound right. I'm in the wrong place. John... Verses 38 to 40. No, I'm in the wrong place. Wait a minute. 11, 38 to 44. Yeah, 38 to 44. Then Jesus again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It, it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who has died, said to him, Lord, by this time... There is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then he took away the stone from the place where the dead man was laying. 
And Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you have you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he, when he had said these things, he cried in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Okay. The NIV version in verse 44 says that he was bound, his hands were bound, and his feet were bound with linen, and he had a sack over his head. So, there is a reason, I believe, in the Bible why they state every detail. Some of, the, some of the stories don't have a lot of detail. But to me, this, this story does. <clears throat> and that really is not a story. It's an incident. What happened? Okay. All right, in verse 39, Martha said, But Lord, by this time there's a, there's a stench, right? He has been dead four days. Why is that in, in the Bible? Let's go back to the let's go back to the stone that uh, that was in front of the cave. Okay, this stone was not like a stone. Okay, it had to be like a boulder, right? Because it covered the entrance to the cave for the for the people to get through, right? To to carry the body in and out. So even if you're not a tall person, if you're a short person, so what? It's still got to be a good-sized boulder to where one person couldn't just lean against it and move it. So it, take, it took quite a bit of effort to move it. <clears throat> so I believe that the stone represents our sin before we were born again. And as they move the stone, we were born again. Our sins are washed away. But there's another thing. She said there was a stench. What does that represent? To me, it represents our sin. I stunk when I was in sin. My relationships stunk. Everything stunk. Uh, My attitude stunk. My way of life stunk. Stunk. I cussed like a sailor. I was a stinky person. But praise God, he cleaned me up and washed me up. He purified me, just like he does all of us that, that get saved. So who can, who can relate to what I'm saying? Okay, amen, amen. In verse 40, God said, didn't I tell you if you believed, you would see The glory of God. Here Jesus is telling us that all we have to believe and we will see the glory of God. Shirley and I are here to tell you we have seen the glory of God. How? We have seen people get healed. 
As we pray for people and God works through us, we see the lame walk. Lady got up out of a wheelchair and she walked. As we laid hands on this man's big tumor on his stomach, it dissolved in our hands as, it, as we prayed. Jesus healed them. We've seen people, ears open up and they can heal. We've seen the eyes open. We've seen hands, arms just grow out. There's so much farm, just farm. And as we prayed, hand grew out. And that person was my wife. Shirley has had back problems for years. She has been taking pain medications for years. Years. And during Bible school, during the advanced class, there was a teacher, A.L. Gill. And I'm here to tell you, the whole 12 weeks was nothing about miracles. And at the end, <clears throat> he shows the students what to do. So what do we do? I stop the video, and I say, okay, women in this line, pair up, face each other, men over here. We're going to practice praying for each other. Shirley was in line. We had one of the students pray for her. And <clears throat> we did what they told us to do. She held out her arms, and her hands were like this, that far apart. Now, it would be easy to say that all she did was just move her shoulder back, back and forth. But no, that's not what happened. As a student prayed for her, tears just started rolling down. And she felt relief. And I tell you what, she has not had that pain since. Amen. And she wasn't the only one. There were many people that were healed like that. One lady was girl, young lady, was healed of scoliosis. She always walked like this. Not anymore. She walked like this. Praise God, right? So I'm telling you, all we have to do is believe in the power of God. It is real. In verse 41, here Jesus thanked God for hearing his prayer. You know what? That's very significant, isn't it? Jesus is showing that when we pray, we need to thank him in advance for answering our prayer. Why is that? That demonstrates faith, right? If, you're not, if you don't believe that God's going to heal this person or not take care of this situation that, that you're in, why pray the prayer? Why ask God? So you say, God, if you want to, I know that you could take care of this situation, so... I'm just going to let it up to you, okay? No. 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 That's not how we should pray. We pray like this. In the name of Jesus, I command this demon to come out of this person. I command this situation to come under the power of God. I command this, this situation to change in your name. That's how we pray. In verse 43 to 44, Jesus said in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet were wrapped in strips of linen and the cloth was around his face. Okay. Let's stop here. He's got his grave clothes on, right? Okay. Who's ever been asleep, had their eyes closed, and somebody comes in and turns on the light? It's like, whoa. 
I can't hardly see anything, right? But he had a sackcloth over his head. So there's probably some light coming in. But even still, he was dead for four days, right? So he's laying down. Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. He says, okay. He gets up, right? So there's a little opening here in the cave for him to come out. He's laying down. He, he gets up. How does he get out of the tomb? His hands are bound. His hands are bound. Feet are bound. His hands are bound. And he's got something over his head. He can't see. Right? That's what he has to do. Now, do you think he's going to come right to the, to the door? That little door? No. In my opinion... He's going to bump into the wall here. He's going to bump here. He's going to bump there and find his way out. But how does he, how does he know where to go? I'll tell you how. He follows the master's voice. And that's what we need to do. This is what we do. We follow the master's voice. And how do you hear the master's voice? Well, for us, we pray. We're in a prayer closet and we pray. We pray together. And we listen for that small, still voice. Sometimes he talks to us in the Scripture. But he talks to us. And that's how he does us. He doesn't talk to everybody the same way. But you got to read the Scripture. you got to pray. Okay, so <clears throat> when... Okay, so Lazarus is alive... He's all bound up, right? What does, the, what does being bound up mean? What does the having his hands and feet tied and, and his face covered mean? Well, to me, it represents several things. It represents, um, see where I'm at here. Okay. It represents it that you cannot, first of all, you cannot move forward, right? If your hands, if your hands or feet are tied, you can't, you can't move forward very well. And you, you can't defend yourself, and you can't see where you are going. And this lot makes life difficult. So when we're saved, when we're saved, it means we're, we have a new life, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean... All the baggage that's that's attached to us just dissolves. It doesn't, does it? We have to work at it with the help of the Holy Spirit. I tell you that one huge thing is is that that could affect our salvation, that it keep us bound up. It's one one thing that affects your relationships. It affects your jobs. It affects your life and everything in it. What is it? It is unforgiveness. Unforgiveness? What do you mean unforgiveness? How could that affect us? Well, let's just say, for instance, let me give you an example. One person, let's say a person from church, 
said something to you that you take offense to. I know it never happens in this church, but I, you know this is saying church down the road. <clears throat> and and all, all you'll be able to think about, I guarantee it, all you would be able to think about is what that person said. You go home. Man, I just can't believe that person said that to me. What do they mean by that? You're going to go to your work. You start working. Man, I can't believe it. That really hurt me. Why did they say something like that to me? There's no truth to that whatsoever. You think about it at home. It starts to affect your relationship with your spouse. You think about it at work. It affects your work. You try to read the Bible and you put the Bible down and say, Lord, I can't believe they said that to me. You're really hurt. You can't move forward. You're bound and you're blinded and unable to fulfill your potential spiritually. You see, that's what the enemy wants. He wants you to be distracted from studying God's word. He wants us to be distracted from doing what God wants us to do. That's his job. And he does it well. Do you know the number one reason missionaries leave the field before their time? It's other missionaries. They take offense at what other missionaries do, say. And it's, it's, we've seen it, and it's, it is true. So they went home not fulfilling what the Lord called them to do. More often than not, that person is, the person that, is, that offended you is a Christian. And that's what hurts the worst. Because you expect more from somebody in this church. And he's supposed to be your friend or it's supposed to be a Christian. You know, you just expect more from it. Psalms 55, 12 through 14, David says, For it is not an enemy who approaches me than I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exhausted himself against me. Then I should hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion, my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throne. The closer the relationship you have, the greater the offense you find the greatest hatred among people who were once close. Before I went on the mission field, I taught divorce recovery for five years. And let me tell you, you have people that were once so madly in love. Nothing could separate them. And now there is just such a wall and hatred that they use even the children to come between them just so they can try to hurt the other person. That's a great offense. So, selfishness is reigning more and more and more in today's world. And that's what a lot of it has to do with uh, unforgiveness. Um, I read the story the other day, just give you another example, of an Australian teen... She was texting and driving, and uh, she hurt, hit a person on a bicycle and almost paralyzed him. She stopped about 300 yards ahead of him, 
And, uh, but she didn't come out and help the person. She was so upset because the bicycle dented her car. Yeah. She said that she didn't care about that person because he dented my car. And that's just one story of thousands that's out there. The Bible is very clear that in the last days, men would be lover of themselves in 2 Timothy uh, 3 through 2. John Bevere's book, The Bait of Satan, if you never read it, I suggest you get it and keep it because it is a good reference tool. John states that the that one way the enemy keeps a person person's offense hidden is cloaked with pride. Pride will keep you from admitting your true condition. Pride keeps you from dealing with the truth. It distorts your vision. You'll, you never change when you think everything is fine. So how does one get over an offense or unforgiveness? Well, we need to remember one very important fact. Forgiveness is not for the other person. The person, the forgiveness is for us. Because nine times out of ten, that person doesn't even know they offended you. They're going on their merry way. They're living their life gloriously like I have not a care in the world. And you're there going, I just can't believe it. That person did that to me. And you're going on like that. You're all bound up. Satan's got you so mad and, and, and bound up, you can't even know which way to go. So, you need to forgive that person. Now, how do you do that? Well, there is a few steps you may want to write down. Pray and seek the Holy Spirit's guidance. That's number one. <clears throat> number two, tell the Lord that you forgive that person and let it go. That's hard to do sometimes, but you need to just let it go. Write a letter to that person stating that you forgive them, but you don't have to mail it. You can, but you don't have to mail it. Write it out. And I mean, sometimes, you know, you, you're mad, and you're going to write things in that letter that you normally, you, that you would not say to their face or anything like that, but it sure relieves that stress from inside you. And then, after you're done with it, tear it up. Burn it. Because um, forgiveness is for you. It's very effective. If the person is still offending you, then you need to approach that person. It's hard. But you know what? Like I said before, they may not even know that they offended you. Okay? Even if it's just your spouse. If it's your children, you know, sometimes youth say things that they don't really mean. I remember telling my daughter once, you know, what you're telling me has really hurt me to the core. And she never said that again. So thing is to approach that person and let them know what's going on. Okay. These actions will set you free, and you will be able to move on. Those chains will release, those bindings will break, and you will be able to move on, and you will be able to see again, 
see your future, and do what God is calling you to do. Now, there are many other things the enemy uses, right, to distract us from fulfilling our calling. <clears throat> now, here I got some statistics here, but one of the biggest things in today's market, as you all know probably, is pornography is a big deal. Pornography is a $50 million, $57 billion industry. 50% of Christian men and 20% of Christian women are addicted to pornography. 68% of divorces involve one party meeting a new partner over the Internet, with 56% of divorces involving one party having an offensive Internet uh, interest in pornography pornography websites. One of three visitors to adult websites are women. One of those uh, struggling with sexual addiction under the age of 35. Of those, okay. 40% are women. And the largest and fastest growing group of of consumers of internet pornography get this age group. 12 to 17 years old. Old, with the average age of exposure, 11 years old. How sad is that? Where does it start? I have to tell you, in Costa Rica and a lot of Latin American countries, they have newspapers. They have newspapers and they have pictures on the back of women and scantily clothed. That is soft porn. Okay? That's where it starts. It starts at home. It starts by allowing it. And we just need to grasp it and, uh, and stop it from, from where it's at. First Peter 5.8 says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. There are people out there who claim there's no proof that pornography is harmful. But I'm telling you, I got stuff that pornography breaks trust. It creates uh, comparisons. It uh, destroys self-esteem. It creates unreal expectations. Porn destroys intimacy in a marriage. It uh, creates shame. It's addictive. It never satisfies what does that mean? Well, the porn industry thrives on consumer dissatisfaction. And uh, it says that they, this one study said that they, uh, someone stated that they, uh, the study said that it stated that the drug addict, drug addict craves more. And the sexual addict craves different. In other words, a heroin addict craves more heroin. He just wants it. But a sex addict <clears throat> doesn't just want more sex. He wants different. So it's very powerful. The enemy knows it, and he's using it. Um, but another one is alcohol. Alcohol, they found, drives, uh, found that divorce was generally more common in couples with high rates of alcohol consumption, but that the highest divorce rates were found in couples where the woman was a heavier drinker. I found that to be very interesting. 
uh, it's a 26.8 divorce rate, whereas with the guy that the husband that was the heavy drinker is only a 13.1 percent. I think the women had more patience with the men than the, the men had with the women or something. But uh, the Chicago, Chicago Tribune said that the drug and alcohol abuse not only affects you, but also your family. Addictions often create interpersonal problems for the whole family. Jealousy. Uh, you, you can grow jealous of your friends, your partner, other family members in your, in your family. Um, conflict with your partner. Conflict with your children. Conflict over money. Emotional trauma. Violence. There's all kinds of things that alcohol and drugs does to a person that they would not normally do. Okay? So, you know, and cheating, it, it, and separation uh, from, your, from your spouses, and there's all kinds of health risk with it. Drinking while you're pregnant uh, causes fetal alcohol syndrome. Um, and that damages the baby's brain, uh, as well as smoking. So, you know, that's only a couple. And here's another big one that is really prominent today, and that is electronics. You know, electronics are great, you know. I'm all for it. It's making our life a little bit easier, but in some cases it's not. But... Um, why do I say electronics? Well, I don't know about you, but when I see, you know, people walking, texting, and then they run, bump into people, not paying attention what they're doing, right? People in cars, texting, talking on the phone, checking their emails all the time. Well, I'll tell you, I don't know about you. I'm a little guilty of this myself. But when I wake up in the morning, when I, in the past, when I woke up in the morning, into the fairly recent future, I would get up, walk the dog, make my coffee, read my Bible. Right? There's a routine. What I'm catching myself doing now is I wake up, put my glasses on, take my my uh, telephone, check my messages, okay, oh, that's interesting, oh, well, I got to walk the dog, so I'm walking the dog, oh, that's pretty neat, yeah, yeah. not paying attention, what's around me, not paying attention to my surroundings, what does that tell you, I'm in a foreign country, I got my phone out, that's really not a smart thing to do in a foreign country, for an American to be out because what they're looking for is that phone. They want to rob Americans anyway because they think we're all rich. So, you know, it, it's very distracting. When, when we put our, our thoughts, our first thoughts when we get up in the morning on checking our email, checking Facebook, checking the news, whatever, in my opinion, what I'm going, what I am working towards getting back to, is getting back to my routine of getting up, walking the dog, making my coffee, and reading my Bible. Okay, it takes work to get out of bad routines. The enemy wants us to be distracted from God's word. 
It's up to us to realize what I'm doing is wrong. Okay? I thank God that he brought that to my attention. You know, if things start, if your life is going good, then all of a sudden, something is going already in, in your life. Something is just not kosher. What I do is, I think back what has changed. What have I not done that I normally did do? And that usually traces back to where the problem lies. And nine times out of ten, I get distracted from God's word because of busyness. And that's when things start going crazy. But when I get back into it, I ask for God's forgiveness, which he is all about, and I praise him for it. Then things start going better again. So it's, it's, it's easy for us to get away from our spiritual walk uh, by being distracted. So I ask God to reveal the problem to you if you don't know what it is. So let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for your word today, Lord God. I ask that you reveal to everyone here any areas in their lives that may be keeping them from moving forward to what you want them to do, Lord God. Father, it is your word that you have placed in us, in each Christian, each saved person that has asked you into their lives, Lord Father God. Reveal to them, open up their eyes, open up their ears, open up their hearts. Father, if there's anyone here that needs to, to forgive someone, Father, I ask that you put that strength in them today to make that first step to forgive them, to release, to release everything that is binding them up, Lord Father God, so that you can use them to their full potential. And Father, if there's any other area that is keeping them from achieving their full potential in you, Lord Father God, I ask, Lord Father God, right now, Father, I ask that we bind that situation right now, Lord Father. We bind it. We bind that spirit of alcoholism. We bind that spirit of, of drug addiction. We bind that spirit of pride. We bind that spirit of pornography and lust. In your name, Lord Father God. And we loose the Holy Spirit upon this place. Upon each individual, Lord Father God. And Lord, we just thank you in advance for what you're doing in each person in this church, Lord Father God. For we know it's for all your glory and not ours, Lord Father God. We thank you in advance, Lord Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Thank you for your attention.